Today we will take on uh, Soren Kierkegaard's first upbuilding discourse and his book, 18 Upbuilding Discourses. And this is one of the first discourses. Uh, well, that doesn't sound right. Let's try that again. This is the first discourse that he wrote, and it's one among his first writings period that he published. That's a better way of saying it. Good job. And this is discourse number one, and the title of this discourse is The Expectancy of Faith. And uh, Soren starts off with a citation from Galatians uh, chapter 3, verse 23 to the end. So we're going to read this from the... uh, from the King James, uh, starting at 23 here, but you could certainly read the whole whole chapter. In this chapter, Paul really goes after the Galatians because they're resorting back to works, they're resorting back to the the law, they're resorting back to Judaism as it was uh, in the Old Testament, very ritualistic, uh, rather than doing those things with faith. There's a way to do ritual with faith, but there's also a way of doing ritual that's very faithless you just do it as part of the routine you stand up you cross yourself you don't eat pork you don't drink alcohol um you know those things can be done with faith and they're they're honorable but there also could be a certain amount of externality which uh, i'm righteous because i obey the law i don't eat pork i don't drink but maybe inside the person can't wait to have some ribs and drink some beer i know that would be me for sure So let me first read the uh, first verse of Galatians 3. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? So Paul is writing to the generation that lived soon and during Jesus' earthly life. They probably didn't ever see Jesus in person because Galatia is not very close to uh, not close to Jerusalem, not close to Galilee, but the presentation of the gospel was Christ crucified for you because he fulfilled the law. That's something we can't do in our actions. We can't do that and please God because even our best works, as Paul would say, and Calvin and Luther and all the reformers, even our best works are tinged with sin. Uh, we re- very rarely ever do things with a completely pure heart. Maybe I'm wrong, but I'm speaking for myself. So I would talk about, uh, you know, this podcast in general. It's certainly going to focus on Soren Kierkegaard, but it's also going to focus on uh, experiences that I've had. I feel like I can speak with authority about the experiences I've had in life. I know it sounds really, really selfish to do that, but it's actually kind of... Um, a different motivation. I know them well. I know my experience as well, of course, as well as I would know anything. Let me take a sip of coffee here. But I also own my stories. No one else owns them. No one can tell me how I should feel about things. So I feel a tremendous amount of freedom to tell my stories the way that I see it. I can't tell other people's stories, uh, either accurately or, you know, what gives me the right to tell someone else's story if they haven't given me permission to tell it. Now, they may tell it, and I may recite it, and there's times I will do that. But they've had to put it out in the public domain uh, with the idea that it just wasn't shared with me personally as a private affair and private conversation. And if I was to reveal anything like that, you would never be able to trace it back to the person who told me. I guarantee it. I learned that in many years of school counseling. You can use other people's stories, but you have to be really confident that the details you provide are generic enough 
that there's not going to be able to somebody can sleuth to the, the person that you're speaking of. But in general, I think it's safer for us to talk about our own stories, which involve other people. Don't get me wrong. I have a right to, for example, reflect on my family because I was a part of it. And uh, my parents have a right to their viewpoint, my brothers or whatever. But that doesn't mean my viewpoint's negated by that. And they could certainly create a podcast if they want. Anti-Soren Kierkegaard. Um, so that's the first verse of uh, Galatians. And then the, the specific uh, verses of Galatians that um, Soren cites is Galatians 3.23 until the end of the chapter, which goes to 29. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in uh, Christ Jesus, uh, sons and daughters of God through faith in Christ Jesus. I would just add the daughters because sometimes, even though it's implied, it's good to say it. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek, which is a huge division in the early church between the, the Jew and the Greek. And Greek uh, would refer to the Greek world around, around the Mediterranean. Uh, they were Hellenized peoples, even if they were not living in Greece per se. There was also Hellenized Jews too, so it's an interesting combination of being Jewish but still being observant and being Hellenized. Paul was Hellenized, for example. Hellenic just means uh, Greek. It doesn't mean going to hell. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So Paul puts his finger on the big divisions of the day. Neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female. So think about the divisions that we have today, you know, ethnically, racially, socioeconomically, and in terms of gender. And then you've got 95% of what separates us as human beings. So Paul says we're all called to faith in Jesus Christ, and that's the great unifier, even though we may be very diverse. So he finishes up with, uh, and if you are in Christ, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So Abraham was the patriarch of the Jewish faith. He's also the patriarch of Islam. Uh, I would say that the Quran takes some liberties, big time, with the history of the Bible. Uh, it's hard to argue that Islam is more historical than Christianity. Uh, the Bible was written over a much longer time period, hundreds and thousands of years. It was also written by 66 different, um, or 66 different books by many, many different authors. And people would say, well, that's a, that's a testimony to it not being legitimate. Well, I would argue it's actually the opposite. There's a lot of evidence that God spoke through people. Uh, in history, and the more testimony you get from many different people, many different life situations, many different experiences, and many different times, actually leads very greatly to the credibility of the claims. Um, I don't know what else to say. That's fairly obvious. Uh, Islam was dictated to one man. <laughs> and if you read it, it has some very beautiful passages in it. I'm not going to say the Quran is, is not a beautiful work in some ways. It, it very much is. Uh, the Quran does not 
though, affirm the deity of Jesus Christ. It says God has no son, that God is one. So it goes into the unitary version of God versus the Trinitarian version that Christians have, which is God is one, but he's also three. And that's a complicated idea to get your, your mind around. Uh, if you haven't figured it out, good for you. But it's the unity and diversity. Most things in life, e pluribus unum. And, uh, and in unity and diversity, uh, there's a oneness. And uh, that's just nature. That's just creation. Uh, so anything that's too uh, solitary, too oneness, actually lacks the diversity aspect. Without without um, speaking too much about that, logically speaking, it's not comprehensive it's, if it's too much unity and not enough diversity. So how do we have unity and diversity? Well, uh, Paul and Soren would say through faith. Uh, faith in the work that Jesus Christ had done on the cross and the resurrection for the vindication of our faith. <clears throat> so I'm turning into a preacher here. This uh, first discourse... Uh, Soren is writing it on January 1 or for January 1. And this is what he starts with. It is on the first day of the year that we are assembled here, devout listeners. Now he says that we are assembled here as if people were in a room. They are not. Soren is speaking about the readership, the people that read his work. Uh, they may be in various places, various times reading it. They are not together physically like in a church or in a in a, in a lecture hall. So he's speaking somewhat figuratively here, but he's also speaking spiritually true that anyone who would respond to his message in some sense is part of the Lord's house because he uses that word specifically. It is in the Lord's house that we are assembled. So it's terribly ironic that he is referring to the Lord's house, which many in, in Denmark would associate with the church, uh, specifically the building. Soren is anti-clerical like we've talked about before so he is speaking entirely in a figurative sense but no less real that anytime someone responds to the truth and an audience responds to the truth even if they're not in a community specifically sitting physically together in one very much real sense they are an assembly uh, so that's the point that he's making here but it's an ironic point because they're not assembled physically but he's using that word so he gets in he starts to get into faith here which is a complicated concept, and uh, let me just try to uh, put this in context a little bit so we understand what he's getting at. Uh, today, uh, the fog is very dense in central Pennsylvania. Dense fog. So until 10 o'clock, it's dangerous to drive because the visibility is very, very low. Uh, when I was out of college, uh, two years after college and before, you know, I lived in Westchester soon thereafter graduating from college, missing that... Uh, that job opportunity working for the congressman down in D.C. I was back in uh, my hometown, Devon, for a bit, living with my mom and my brothers, um, living up in the attic. It was unbearable in both winter and in the summer. It was too hot or too cold. Uh, my mom was charging me a decent amount of rent, so it didn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that she was trying to kick me out of the nest. And surprisingly, I was resistant. I wanted to hold on to what was familiar. It wasn't that great living there, of course, for a lot of reasons. But my mom did the right thing, and she pretty much booted me out by making it a very bad deal for me to stay. So I wound up moving to Westchester after I got a job at a reform school, which was closer to the school. Just down 202, take a left, go to the back, back roads. I worked at uh, Glen Mills before it got busted by the police for abuse. Uh, I was in the pre the pre-investigation era, thank God, I was pretty. Uh, I was a pretty uh, 
good employee, I would say. I didn't resort to using intimidation as a rule with the kids, although I would use it on occasion, but try to be mindful about it, not use it and abuse it. I wanted the kids to know who was boss, though. That was dangerous for them not to understand that. So when I uh, lived in Westchester, I started working at this reform school as a teacher and a counselor. I didn't know where life was headed. I thought maybe I wanted to go to law school at some point, but I don't want to go immediately. Um, so that two years, I worked as a teacher and a counselor. After about two years, I realized that the job was a dead end, even though it had taught me a lot of really great things, and a lot of great principles, and made me more confident in myself. Um, there's nothing quite like uh, working with uh, 60 juvenile delinquents on a Friday night with one other staff member who's equally as unprepared for that job as I was. Um, I look back at it and I shudder in fear of the liability and just the challenge of doing that. I was just too young to know how stupid it was to only have two staff members and 65 delinquents in a building on a Friday night. I, I just, I can't even fathom how risky that was. Um, but the job was good for me, and um, after two years, I figured out that I wasn't going anywhere. Uh, very few people were, so I moved on. But in that two years, was very profitable. I coached basketball, I was a teacher in the classroom, and I also was a kind of a, a counselor type, you know, a very masculine version of counselor, not, not a weepy counselor, a demanding, pushy counselor, I would say. And I remember when I was one time shopping in Westchester uh, on a day off or before I had to go to work. So initially I worked on the uh, PM shift, which was from four to midnight and had Mondays and Tuesdays off, which absolutely stink. Uh, That's the worst social calendar imaginable. But I walked into a shop and they had a button called onward through the fog, onward through the fog. And I was like, damn, if that wasn't the most accurate thing I've ever heard. So I put it on my blue jean jacket, which were a thing back then. Um, blue jean jackets were at least somewhat styling. But unfortunately, I lost the button over time, but it did it did actually capture that I was staring at this big abyss called my future, and I had no idea where I was headed. I was 24 years old, 23 gone, 24, I guess. Uh, man, I tell you what, that's a lot to look at. It was very intimidating to be that young and to realize that the world stood before me. And that sounds great when we tell kids, like, the world is your oyster, or, you know, you have plenty of fish in the sea, or you can do anything, or, you know, just think about the, <laughs> the negative side of that, which is, well, then what the hell am I supposed to do? It's not clear, right? So onward through the fog. Dense. Dense is the word of the day. Soren gets into... Uh, wishing people like a happy new year and he points out the irony and the paradox of uh, the future and its unexplored possibility is so very vivid to us our wish is usually of a more general nature in the hope that is greater that its greater compass will be more readily embrace the manifoldness of the future because we feel the difficulty of wishing uh, something definite with respect to what is indefinite and indefinable <laughs> but we do not let this block our wish we do not give thought the time to disturb the puzzling and vague impulses of the heart we feel a good will that still ought to not be disparaged as light-mindedness even though it does not deserve to be honored with the name of love only a particular person do we make an exception we feel more closely attached to him than others and are more concerned for 
his or her welfare, the more that is the case, the more conscious we become of the difficulty. As thought thought becomes more absorbed in the future, it loses its way in its restless attempt to force or entice an explanation from the riddle. That is pretty cool stuff. uh, You know, uh, Soren, I was going to say Paul. Paul's related to this. Let me get back to Paul in a sec. So Soren says the closer we are to someone, the more that we love someone, the more we want good for that person. You know, we want them to have good whatever that means and it's uh, openness about the future good things happen and in future episodes I'll get into uh, that in more specifics so let's tie this back to Paul as we try to hit the goal of 20 minutes here 20 minutes and out kind of like a workout routine in this chapter of Galatians Paul is talking about the law being a tutor for Christ being a teacher for Christ, about faith in Christ. So the law was was fairly clear. It was complicated. There were a lot of laws about a lot of things. In the Old Testament, there was uh, the, the moral law, the ethical law, uh, as expressed in the Ten Commandments. Uh, those are pretty black and white. You might dispute certain interpretations of it, but the advantage of the law is it's very, very clear, uh, the Ten Commandments. And then there were other laws. And they tend to fall into categories like uh, the ceremonial law or the ritual law. And that can involve um, eating certain foods or not mixing certain types of fabrics, um, you know, when to worship, how to worship, how to tithe, how to give money back to the synagogue or to, you know, it's not really the synagogue, it'd be more into the, the priests, the Levites, you know, what to sacrifice, how to sacrifice animals, which was part of the, the Jewish system on the altar so there was a lot of ceremonial law ritual law and i i wonder about that side of things like why was pork not allowed why is it allowed now people can argue that it's because of like health i don't think that carries weight because i think no matter what you eat if it's not been stored properly or whatever it's it's naturally going to be dangerous maybe uh pork is more dangerous than others i don't think so though uh, maybe I don't, but I don't think that's the reason for the rule. So, this is about defining a culture, and there's symbology behind the law, the ceremonial law. Uh, you know, pigs were considered unclean, and that was kind of referring to people that weren't Jewish in one way. Like, there's an outside culture that's very idolatrous, it's very pagan, doesn't know God. Um, so, one of the ways that God taught His people to be separate was to um, have this, this ceremonial law, which was clean versus unclean, Jew versus Gentile, etc., etc., etc. So it was a tutor to try to impart a spiritual concept that in one way people of faith are separate from people that don't have faith. And it was manifested in very practical things that people could understand that they saw daily. But the faith that Paul talks about is faith in Jesus Christ. So the law, which is pretty black and white, is pointing us towards faith in Christ. And it was black and white in one way that Jesus did come, he did live, he did die, he was resurrected. Uh, People may question that, but that's the Christian message. You know, that's what the gospel is based upon. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, uh, Paul says your your faith is is useless. It doesn't matter faith in what. you know, don't don't water away the gospel, take it or leave it, but don't water it down. Um, 
But faith is in belief that Christ was the fulfillment of the law, the black and white law, the ceremonial law, the fulfillment of all law, and that we live by faith in what he did and how he lived. And that is what faith means. Now, Soren's kind of getting into this idea that faith has implications. We can have a belief in Christ, a belief in his resurrection, uh, and, and have salvation through his work. But that doesn't mean that we have all the answers. It doesn't mean we know the future. It doesn't mean that we are not intimidated by what could happen or what is possible down the road, either what we would consider good or bad. So that's the side of faith that Soren starts to develop here in this first upbuilding discord is the idea that we're wishing good upon our friends in the new year. And let's be honest, every day is a new year of sorts. We should um, always see the past as the past, today as the, the present, and tomorrow as the future. So every day is a new a new year in one way, and new year, new you, uh, as in steps. To some extent, we can become different people, better people. So Soren gets into this as time goes on, and join me as we continue on this journey.